This morning we are returning to Luke's Gospel. We've been journeying through Luke's record of the life and the teaching of Jesus. This morning we come to chapter 17. If you're using the church Bible from the back, that's page 1050. Luke chapter 17. Last time, before Easter weekend, we looked at the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus told that story to make the point that we need to listen to what God says and then obey what he says. Jesus was teaching that we're not to expect spectacular signs and wonders from God that will remove all of our doubts and questions. We're called to listen to what God says in his written word and then obey what he says. This morning we find that Jesus has more to say. I'm going to pick up in chapter 17, verse 1, and I'll read down to verse 19. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, Prepare my dinner, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This is God's word. What is it that ties this passage together? Well, the first section tells us what we must take for granted as followers of Jesus. 
And the second section tells us what we must not ever take for granted as followers of Jesus. So what we must take for granted and then what we must not take for granted. First of all, in verse 10, what we must, verses 1 to 10, what we must take for granted are personal responsibilities with regard to sin. It's very easy for us to become indifferent towards sin. Our own sin as well as everybody else's. Battling against sin can seem like too much hard work. Maybe we've made plenty of attempts over the years, but we've had very little success, very little progress. We just ended up feeling guilty guilty and useless. And so we give up. We're no longer appalled by our own sin, and we're no longer saddened by the sin that we see all around us. And so when the topic of sin comes up, maybe in our Bible reading, maybe in a sermon, we tell ourselves that, well, we've tried. We're obviously not a strong enough Christian to battle sin. And God loves us anyway. So we push the idea of struggling against sin to the back of our minds. But in this passage, Jesus makes it clear that we can't push this to the back of our minds. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, then we must recognize that we have responsibilities with regard to sin. And these responsibilities are normal. They're routine. They're not for super-Christians. They're for ordinary, unremarkable Christians. We're to take it for granted that the Christian life involves certain duties with regard to sin. And these duties are not add-ons. Today, when we go and buy something electronic, we get our basic iPad or whatever it is, and then we can pay extra to get different add-ons, special features that aren't part of the basic package. Jesus says your responsibilities with regard to sin are not add-ons to the Christian life. They're part of the basic package. Take them for granted. So let's look at the responsibilities Jesus mentions. Firstly, in verse 1 through to the beginning of verse 3, our responsibility not to cause others to sin. Look again at those verses. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round his neck and for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. Verse 1 explains that Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who have committed to follow him. And Jesus shows that he has a realistic picture of life in this world. Even Christian life in this world. Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. We could translate that, temptations to sin are bound to come, or literally stumbling blocks are bound to come. Even in the community of God's people, there is going to be sin. So as long as we live in this world, there will be things that cause people to sin. But notice, Jesus doesn't make that into an excuse. He immediately goes on to say, but woe to that person through whom they come. 
In other words, yes, the big picture is one of a world full of temptation and stumbling blocks. But you, Jesus says, if you call yourself a disciple, you must not contribute to that temptation. You must not be a stumbling block. You must not lead others to sin. So the reality of sin does not take away our personal responsibility. Jesus doesn't say here what he means by stumbling blocks. He leaves it very open-ended. So let me suggest just a few areas where you and I might cause or tempt others to sin. I'll start with myself. First, Peter says that leaders in the church are not to lord it over those entrusted to them. Instead, we are to be examples to the flock. In 1 Timothy, Paul says church leaders are to guard the truth of God's word that's been entrusted to them. They're not to add to it or twist it or leave bits out of it. They're to teach it faithfully and as accurately as they know how. How many church leaders have put stumbling blocks in people's way by lording it over those in their care, by being negative examples, by twisting God's word, or denying some truth found in God's word. How many leaders have shipwrecked the faith of men and women under their care? There's a popular evangelical leader in America who's just published a book where he calls into question the heart of the Christian faith. I wish that he'd stopped to think how many people were going to be led astray by his book. Woe to him for being a stumbling block to Christians who accept his teaching. Men. We're told the average man now views six to seven hours of pornography each week. And the argument is that it's fine because it's a personal thing. As long as you don't let it get out of hand. Would you like your kids to catch you during your personal time? Would you like them to follow the trails you leave on your computer? Would you like them to find the stuff you download on your computer? Never mind official pornography, what about the DVDs that you have lying around the house? What about the attitude towards women that grows out of all of that? The attitude that views women as objects, pieces of apparatus. Would you like to pass on that stumbling block to your children? Ladies, do you ever think about how you dress? Are you aware that your dress can be a cause of sin to others? If you are aware, do you allow that awareness to influence what you wear? Or do you insist on fashion at all costs? Even the cost of causing a brother to stumble. When I worked in the U.S., a group of us who worked together were planning a trip to the beach. And one of my female Christian co-workers told me she was going to be wearing a string bikini that day. And she said, 
If you look, I'll slap you. Yes, men have a personal responsibility not to look. But surely my co-worker was forgetting her responsibility not to be a temptation to sin. It wasn't Megan, by the way. (laughs) And neither am I suggesting that string bikinis are the only clothes that you should avoid. Let's widen it out to all of us. Are we happy to gossip and slander others behind their backs? Is that the picture of the Christian life we want to give to those who listen to us? To our kids who hear us around the dinner table? To the new Christian who's trying to figure out what Christianity is all about? When we give in to that kind of loose and bitter tongue, are we not tempting others to follow us in our sin? In verse 2, Jesus says, The crime of tempting others to sin is so serious, it would be better to go through a grotesque death than to cause others to stumble into sin. A millstone was used for grinding flour. It had to be pushed around by a donkey. And our own imaginations will tell us what it would be like to drown with one of those around our neck. Horrible. But, says Jesus, that would be better than causing another to sin. I don't think little ones here only refers to children. It certainly includes children. But back in chapter 12, Jesus referred to his followers as his little flock. So I think here he's referring to all those who commit to following him. Children and adults. They are his little ones. And speaking about them in this way shows how precious they are to him. They're not to be harmed or led astray. You and I have a responsibility not to cause their downfall through our own sinful actions, our words, our example. So essentially, this is a call to do battle against sin in our own lives. Wrong attitudes, wrong behaviors, wrong speech. Because it's sin in our own lives that's going to cause others to sin. That's why in verse 3, Jesus says to his disciples, So watch yourselves. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Jesus is saying that watching our lives and our doctrine is to be a normal part of daily life for his followers. We have a responsibility not to cause others to sin. And the rest of verse 3 and verse 4 Jesus points to our responsibility to rebuke and forgive brothers and sisters who sin against us. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Notice Jesus says, if your brother sins. The word in the original includes sisters. So what Jesus says here applies to a fellow believer who sins against us. And it is against us, against me or against you. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't call us to forgive them. 
But before talking about forgiveness, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, rebuke him or her. This is one of our personal responsibilities with regard to sin. And for some of us, this is a terrifying command. For others, it might be quite exciting. Some of us might think, what are we waiting for? Let's get started. If you're in that group, then curb your enthusiasm by noting the word sin here. A lot of the things that you and I feel hurt by aren't sin at all. Much of the time we feel hurt or hard done by because our pride has been hurt. Maybe people didn't like our idea. They didn't notice the great act of service we did. Or maybe our selfish ambition has lost out. Someone else got asked to do what we wanted to do. A lot of what we see as wrongs done to us are not sin at all. They're caused by our own envy or frustrated pride. And Jesus is not giving us a license here to avenge our own hurt feelings or pride. But having said that, there will be times when a brother or sister sins against us. And then Jesus says we are to rebuke them. Why? What's to motivate us in our rebuke? Well, we're soon going to see that it cannot be a desire to score points against the other person. Our motivation cannot be a desire to bring them down. It must be a desire to turn them away from their sin. It must be a desire to see them grow in holiness. In other words, our rebuke must come from a desire to serve the best interests of our brother or sister, not from a desire for personal revenge. We rebuke them because we love them. And their sin is hindering their growth in Christ-likeness. No one benefits if we pretend a sin against us was not a sin. We don't benefit. We just end up becoming bitter and resentful. We end up carrying around grudges. And the person who sinned against us certainly is not helped either. If we say nothing, they're just being left to carry on in their sin instead of being challenged to forsake it. Last Sunday night, Mike directed us to the command in the book of James to confess our sins to each other. Here we find another aspect of life in God's community, another aspect of fellowship. Our life together is to lead us all on to greater purity and obedience to God. So how do we avoid dishing out harsh, unloving rebukes? Or to put it another way, how do we make sure that when we rebuke, we do so with the right attitude? Jesus shows us in the second half of this sentence. He says, if he repents, forgive him. If we have delivered our rebuke in a harsh, unloving way, if we've enjoyed it, if our goal was to hurt our brother and sister and score points against them, then we won't be prepared to quickly turn around and extend forgiveness to them. On the other hand, if we have delivered our rebuke in the right spirit, if we have delivered it in love, then we'll be hoping that it brings them to repentance. And if they respond in repentance, we'll be falling over ourselves to forgive them and be reconciled to them. 
So if and when we need to rebuke a brother or sister, let's first check our attitude. Let's ask, what is my motivation? Is it ultimately to bring them to repentance so I can be reconciled to them? Or is it just so that I can lash out at them in anger? And the way to find out which it is, is to ask, if they immediately turn and ask for forgiveness, am I ready to forgive them immediately? Our willingness to forgive must be equal to our willingness to rebuke. If it's not, then our heart isn't in the right place. And we need to get before God until our heart is in the right place. Jesus' words show us here that there's a kind of forgiveness that can only be given when the other person repents. We're to be ready and eager to forgive. When we reach that point, we could almost say that we have forgiven the person. We've made our heart ready to embrace them. But full forgiveness can't happen until the other person seeks it. Only then can we be truly reconciled to them. And in verse 4, Jesus says we're to keep on forgiving. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Obviously, Jesus is using an extreme example to make his point. Not many of us will be called on to forgive the same person seven times in one day. Still, when we read this, we have to ask ourselves, should we not consider the genuineness of someone's repentance? Can their repentance really be genuine if they immediately go and do the same thing again? Well, let's think about our own repentance for sin. Do we expect God to take us seriously when we repent? course we do. But how long does it take before we forget ourselves and go and sin again? So unless we have evidence the person is not sincere, then we're called to accept their repentance. We've said this is referring to our Christian relationships. Does this have application to a non-Christian who sins against us? Well, certainly not in the same way. They have not committed to love us the way our brothers and sisters in Christ have. We don't have that agreed upon standard that we can call them back to. But at least we can say this with regard to our relationships outside the church family. We should be known as people who are quick to forgive when forgiveness is asked for. At the very least, We should be known as people who don't hold grudges. At this point, you might be concerned looking at your watch. We've only covered four verses so far. But don't worry, we'll move more quickly from now on because in verses 5 to 10, Jesus gives us two illustrations. And he gives them in response to something the disciples say. In verse 5, the disciples, who are here called the apostles, respond to Jesus by saying, increase our faith. What do they mean? Well, they may just mean that they need Jesus' help to obey these commands. But bearing in mind the way Jesus responds to them, I think what the disciples are saying is, we're not ready for this. It's too much. 
We can't do it. We don't have enough faith for this kind of obedience. Jesus responds by saying, these responsibilities are basic for all followers of Jesus. They are not overtime work or just for elite disciples. Look at verse 6. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Jesus says, you don't have to be a super disciple to live this way. Just a little faith is enough. Just a basic faith. I think this is a challenge from Jesus. Don't wait until you feel ready for this kind of life. Even the little faith you have is enough for the great things God calls you to do. Don't make excuses, Jesus says. Step out in obedience and see what God will enable you to do. But what about the picture Jesus uses here? Telling trees to go and transplant themselves? It's unlikely Jesus expects us to start ordering trees around. The connection with what he's just been talking about is the apparent impossibility of the task. Scholars tell us the mulberry tree that Jesus is pointing at has a vast root system, enabling it to live up to 600 years. It just does not seem that a word of command is going to move that kind of deeply rooted thing. And similarly, we hear Jesus' word telling us to battle against our own sin. We hear his word to rebuke and to forgive. And our reaction is, this stuff goes against everything that's deeply rooted in my life. It's too hard. Living this way is as likely as talking to a tree that stood in one place for hundreds of years and convincing it to move itself. But Jesus says to these disciples, and he says to us, just step out. Don't wait for the day when you feel like a world beater. Don't use your spiritual weakness as an excuse. Step out in obedience. Confront the sin in your life head on. Take action against it. Talk to your brother or sister. Hold out the hand of forgiveness. Step out in obedience and see what God will do. Then Jesus gives another illustration, verse 7. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? No one in this little story is supposed to represent God. Jesus is simply talking about a servant or a slave who has certain responsibilities. The master in this story is fairly poor. He only has one servant. So the servant does the work out in the field and he does the work in the house. Rightly or wrongly, fairly or unfairly, those are his responsibilities. So this servant should not expect his master to get excited because he's done half of his job. 
When he comes in from the field, the servant should not assume he's earned the right to be excused from the rest of his responsibilities. No, preparing the supper and serving his master is equally part of his responsibility. Doing the housework for this servant is not overtime. It's basic. Then in verse 10, Jesus makes the point of application to our situation. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Unworthy servants does not mean useless servants. It means servants who haven't earned any special credit. They've just done their job. Obedience to Jesus' commands is not overtime work for us. It's basic work. It's not for special occasions. It's for every day. We have no right to pick and choose a few responsibilities that we like and then feel we've done enough. One writer says, living the way Jesus calls us to here is simply the daily fare of discipleship. We must take for granted our personal responsibilities with regard to sin. And secondly, and much more briefly, what we must not take for granted, God's mercy to us. Verses 11 to 19. Jesus moves on, and on the outskirts of a village, ten lepers meet him. Actually, verse 12 says they stood at a distance from him. There was good reason for that. Leprosy was not only harmful to the body. In Israel, it destroyed a person's social and religious life as well. They had to live cut off from the rest of the community. That's because the disease was thought to be contagious. And they were declared ceremonially unclean. They couldn't take part in religious life. Lepers existed at the very margins of society. So it's no surprise that these lepers are outside the village and that they stand at a distance from Jesus. But they want his help all the same. Look at verse 13. They called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And Jesus has pity. He tells them to go and show themselves to the priests. Why would Jesus tell them to do that? Simply because only the priest could allow them back into normal life. He had to declare them clean before they could return to society, to their families and their work. Jesus can heal these lepers, but he's helping them find more than just physical healing. He's enabling them to be reconciled to those they were cut off from. And verse 14 says that on their way to the priests, they were cleansed. And obviously they realized they were cleansed. Verse 15 implies that one of them, when he saw he was healed, didn't carry on to the priest. He turned around and came back, praising God in a loud voice. Verse 16 says, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Last time this man saw Jesus, he didn't dare approach him. He stood at a distance. Now he comes close to Jesus. He has forgotten, at least for the moment, 
about getting his certificate from the priest and going back to his village. He's overwhelmed by what Jesus has done for him. He's excited and he's noisy. He's full of exuberant praise. He doesn't just kneel down. The text says he throws himself at Jesus' feet. He's a big ball of happy thankfulness. And who wouldn't react this way? He's been given his life back. Who would take Jesus' mercy for granted? Apparently lots of people would. Nine out of ten, to be exact. Look at verse 17. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. Jesus draws attention to the fact that it was the foreigner who got excited by God's mercy, the Samaritan. So we're to assume the other nine were Jews. They were religious people, people steeped in the scriptures, but unmoved by God's mercy. They took their physical healing for granted, and they rushed to get on with their lives. But this Samaritan finds more than just physical healing from Jesus. In verse 19, Jesus says to him, literally, your faith has saved you. This man started out asking for physical healing, but he has come to see Jesus for who Jesus really is. And he has found spiritual healing in life, eternal salvation. We might ask how this relates to the first section of our passage. Well, we noticed there that there was a hesitancy among Jesus' disciples. Jesus spoke about their responsibilities, and they seemed reluctant. We don't think we're ready for that. It seems a bit extreme. Is there a less demanding kind of discipleship we can sign up for? That would be good. Maybe we feel something similar when we listen to Jesus. So how do we change that? Surely we change it by refusing to take God's mercy for granted. Before we focus on the problem of obedience, let's focus on his mercy to us. Many of us here this morning have experienced that mercy. We can look back to a time in our lives when we were, spiritually speaking, standing at a distance from God, just like these ten lepers. But the day came when we realized our distance. We sensed the reality of the sin that separated us from God. We cried to God for mercy. We knew our guilt and our uncleanness. And we trusted that Jesus was our only hope. And God responded by showing us mercy. He forgave us, not because we'd earned it, but because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He died taking on himself our guilt and sin. And when we trusted in Jesus and his work, God pronounced us forgiven, clean, reconciled to him. Many of us have experienced God's amazing mercy. But maybe we aren't very amazed anymore. Maybe we're too busy rushing on with life. Maybe our focus is taken up with other things. 
So we hear Jesus talk about the responsibilities of disciples, and it just seems like a heavy burden. It seems too all-consuming. We're tempted to say, enough of this discipleship stuff. How do we move from being reluctant disciples to being like this Samaritan, an exuberant follower of Jesus? Surely the transformation comes when we refuse to take God's mercy for granted. Pastor called Tim Keller says, The very fact you're a Christian is a miracle. Be amazed. Be in wonder. Surely it's that, God, that wonder at God's mercy that's going to make us say to ourselves, of course I'll battle sin in my life. Of course I'll help my brothers and sisters fight their sin. Of course I'll forgive. I used to be under condemnation for my sin, but Jesus died for me. Now I can call God my Father. I can approach him in prayer. One day I'll be with him. I'll see him as he is. Of course I live to serve him and obey him now. What else would I live for? George Muller lived in the 1800s. He's known today as an amazing servant of God. He stepped out in faith and in his life he did amazing things for God. He's probably best known for the orphanages he ran in this country. Where did 